Thank you so much. Good morning, friends. It's lovely to see you. Yep, as uh, Matt said, we're now nearing the end of the series. So I'm just going to move this because I bashed it about 15 times in the first service. Sorry, Hannah, wherever you are. Sure, we'll, sure, we'll all be fine. As Matt said, we're, uh, yeah, we're, lo- we're looking at these eight different kind of facets or themes or motifs of, uh, of what Jesus achieved at the cross. So, so we've seen so far how Jesus... Uh, delivers us from slavery to sin at the cross, how he frees us from death, how he overcomes Satan, and this morning it's my great privilege to talk about the theme of Jesus as our substitute, about how our actions against God from the dawn of time should have meant that the people hanging on the cross in every generation, frankly, is us, and that how as an act of extreme love and perfect justice and immeasurable mercy, Jesus substituted himself for us and was sacrificed in our place at the cross. There is something about the idea of one person dying for another that strikes a chord in the human psyche unlike any other. And that should be no surprise really because one of the central claims that we make about the relationship between us and God is that we were made by him and we were made for him and that we were made in his image And as we'll see this morning, I believe that the image of God, the way we see him in his truest form, is exemplified as we see him dying in our place on the cross. That's one of the reasons I I believe we're so deeply moved by stories of sacrifice. It's why we pay the military dead such high regard and remember them for their sacrifice. That's the basic premise of soldiering, that you might go to your death on behalf of and to protect another. That's why the eerie sound of the last post at a soldier's funeral just uh, resonates and moves us so deeply. It's why we pay tribute to fallen soldiers and we talk about them paying the ultimate price because one price, one, one life for another really is, is ultimate. Well, how about the story of Maximilian, fa- uh, sorry, of Father Maximilian Kolb, who's a Catholic priest who was imprisoned in the Auschwitz concentration camp when one day 10 men were randomly chosen for execution. One of them shouted, my poor wife, my poor children. And so Kolb stepped forward and asked if he could be chosen to die in the condemned man's place. And the offer was accepted by the guards and he was placed in an underground cell with the nine other guys. And uh, history records that Kolb spent 10 days in prayer consoling the other inmates as he and they all starved to death on behalf of the one man who had been spared such a terrible death. That story really moved me when I read it, and it should move us all because it's, uh, it, um, well, it's, it's an incredible act of bravery and sacrifice. I'm going to uh, read a verse that we're going to consider more fully from 1 Peter 2.24 that outlines something of this theme of self-sacrifice as achieved for us by Jesus. It'll come up on the screen, so you can read along with me if you like. But 1 Peter 2.24 says that he himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. He himself bore our sins in his body and went to the cross. When you boil it all down, this is the explicit statement at the heart of the gospel. If you, if you want to know the gospel, and if you want to, want to know what it means uh, when Christians say that Christ paid the price for you, 
the reality at the heart of all of that is that he himself bore your sin in his body. He substituted himself for us and went to the cross. Consider it like this. Those inmates in Auschwitz were selected for death and Maximilian Kolb steps forward and asks if he could literally take the penalty of one of the ten onto himself. Maximilian Kolb metaphorically throws himself in front of the bullet and says, no, not him, me instead. In that sense, he absorbs the penalty hanging over the man sentenced to death in his own body. That's what Jesus does, and that's what it means when it says that he bore our sins in his body. We're guilty. We deserve death. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. We face a penalty for our misdemeanors, but he takes the cost of it by hanging on a cross, where our bodies should have been broken by God for our wrongdoing, his body gets broken instead on our behalf. I want to just pause and consider that, and I've uh, been praying and asking the Holy Spirit to help us with this, because we do sing the words just as we have, and we say them ever so often, but I'm asking God to help us to understand more fully that at the very heart of the jewel of the gospel, the most important thing, the thing that allows us to stand here today in relationship with him and with each other, rather than coming to a smoking, trembling mountain of God's wrath against sin, is that God himself, in the person of Jesus, self-sacrificed, died on the cross, the most lonely and cursed death there ever was in all of history as our substitute. Okay, let's start at the start so we can see how this all works. If, if you're a driver, you'll know what happens when your wheels fall out of alignment. The four wheels of a car are meant to all face exactly the same direction so that the car goes where you position it to go. But when a wheel comes out of alignment, it starts to pull in one direction or another, and you have to work much harder at keeping the car on the road and in the right lane. And the, the more the wheels come out of alignment, the more course corrections you need to make as you steer, which in itself creates less wheel alignment or more misalignment, if you like. And the more likely it therefore is that you'll ultimately steer right into a ditch or worse yet, into oncoming traffic in an extreme case. Now, we just hold that thought for a moment because I think it's going to help us to understand what comes next. Okay, now let's talk about sin. Sin is the problem that all humanity faces in that it's our sin that separates us from God. We have reduced sin in our culture down to misdemeanors and stuff that we do wrong occasionally. So everything on a sliding scale from telling a white lie to robbing a bank, that all falls under the umbrella of sin. But it's actually much more complex than that and desperately more serious too. Because the problem actually starts in the heart with a wonky wheel that instead of living for God and for his purposes for your life and for his world, we start to kind of veer off course to lesser or greater degrees. And so our problem's not as much about making bad choices and dropping the ball occasionally, although that is a problem, but sin, I'd say that sin is not as much about what you do in, in dark places in secret as much as it's a fundamental misalignment with God and with his goodness and with his purposes for you. 
which when you strip it all apart, is to live for him and to be in right relationship with him, which involves recognizing his lordship over every area of your life and his great love for you. In a car, if you hit a stone, there's a risk that the wheels will lose alignment. But in our hearts, the problem is that those stones in life that cause misalignment are all the moments where we choose to veer the vehicle our own way. We're, as you know, made to be set on God, but we deliberately pull the vehicle in other directions to lesser or greater degrees to satisfy our own need to be in control of our lives and to satisfy what we want rather than what our Father tells us we need. And if you pull away from God, who is the source of all goodness and life and hope, then you're increasingly pulling into darkness and despair and death. Our problem is not so much that we, I don't know, accidentally swear or litter or lose our tempers, but that our wonky, misaligned hearts naturally want to pull away from God. I recall my mother trying to teach me to drive when I was a teenager. She'd been driving for decades, and I'd been behind the wheel of a car for five minutes, but I thought I knew best. So when she said to me, slow down and course correct as we came down a road, I basically said, no, I'm going to go my way. And so I kept my speed and just drove straight into our wall outside our house. Knocked the wall down, caused a whole lot of damage and a whole lot of punishment for myself as well. And God who loves you with an everlasting love is not happy about the tendency that we show to go at our own pace and to drive off the road. In fact, he's very, very angry about sin, since sin is what's robbing us, robbing his people of all that could be ours in him. When we talk about God's wrath, that's what we're talking about. It's the anger that a father feels at a disease that is taking their child slowly. A few weeks back, one of my kids had an emergency brain scan. We were quite concerned, and the doctors were increasingly concerned that they may have had a a growth on their brain, and thankfully they didn't. But mixed in with the emotions of fear and sorrow and pleading, there was also in me a deep anger against all that is wrong in the world, against sickness and MRIs and death. The wrath I was feeling was an expression of my love for my child. Something is wrong in the world. We've veered off course and we've got this self-inflicted open wound of separation from our maker, this misalignment and misdirection of the heart that manifests as rebellion against God. It says, just like me in the car that day, no thanks, I'm going to go my own way at my own pace. Our sin is so much worse than being a bit sweary or going over the speed limit or dropping litter. It is outright rebellion against our Father, and it is deeply offensive to his perfect nature. Sin has brought total misalignment to the world. The only good law, the only good way of living, God's way, has been contravened, and reparation needs to be made. Sin is desperately more important, uh, sorry, more serious than we think, because it's our declaration of independence against all that is good and right. It's a tragic irony that the very reason we need a substitute in the first place is because we have tried to substitute God by deposing him and putting ourselves 
on the throne that belongs to him only. And consequently, we've opened up a great chasm between our good father and our not-so-good human hearts. This is why the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Colossians 1, sorry, in Colossians 1.21, that our sin wasn't just us being a bit naughty, but that we'd become enemies of God. We have veered badly, of course, and we deserve the appropriate punishment for that. That's God's perfect justice, and it's a good justice. Where there has been wrong, something needs to be, made, needs to be done to make it right, and only God is right. Where the perfect law of God has been broken by rebellion, only the God who is perfectly just can make this right. The way that the perfectly loving father deals with the separation between him and the people he loves is for him to exercise perfect justice in dealing with the separation that we've caused. Now, perfect love and perfect justice, these are two of the most defining attitudes and characteristics of God. But here's the thing, there is no attitude or characteristic in God which isn't also an action. That's so important to know. He isn't just compassionate, he deals compassionately. He isn't just forgiving, he forgives. He isn't just loving, he envelops us with his love. And he doesn't just want justice, he exercises justice. Perfect love for his children and perfect justice against rebellion, which must be perfectly enacted by a perfect God. And the only way of making this right is for him to punish and drive out rebellion by eradicating the rebels. The problem for us is that the children, we are the rebels. In the Old Testament, the, uh, the way God dealt with this problem is like this. If you do wrong, make an atoning sacrifice. You've done wrong, you've veered off course, but I have mercy on you, knowing that I formed you from the dust and you're easily led astray by the gold and the glitter of the world. So I'm going to create a system of sacrifice that allows you to make this right. Sacrifice must happen. Something must die in recognition of the wrongdoing uh, that you've chosen to acknowledge the way of death that you've also chosen so that you don't have to. God's perfect law has been broken and so his perfect justice must be enacted. But the justice will be enacted on your sacrifice instead of your life. And as you do that, your sin will be forgiven and overlooked. That's how God's justice works. If there's a fundamental breakage in how we relate to God and his ways, then in order for his justice to be maintained and for relationship to be restored, something must be done to put it right again. That's how we can know that he is and will set all that is wrong and misaligned in the world back into its rightful order one day. The great hope of the Christian is that ultimately God exercises the same justice against everything that stands against him and his people by driving out all the cancers and all the death and all the crime and all the pain and the sorrow by making all things new and right again. Now, there were essentially two types of sacrifice or offering in those days. One was, the first one was a, was a peace offering. You sacrifice an animal or some grain, and this symbolizes that you have peace or communion with God. 
And the second type of sacrifice was a sin or a guilt offering, which was known as an atoning sacrifice, since its purpose was for man to atone, to make ends, or to offer reparation for his guilt. As we just saw, the purpose of this type of sacrifice is to make something right that is wrong. And although the word doesn't specifically mean this, I find it quite helpful to look at the word atone and see it in its two parts, at one. Previously we were separated because of my sin, but now we we are at one again. And the problem here, of course, is that just as in any relationship, you can't build peace and friendship if there's a fundamental breakdown in the basis of that relationship. You can't just slap your friend in the face and then take them out for a light lunch. Something deeper and more reparative needs to be done first. And so too with the peace offering. Before you can know peace with God, something deeper and more corrective needs to be done to fix the rupture between you. You need to acknowledge the wrongdoing and repair the rupture by making an atoning sacrifice first. This is how one writer puts it. Genuine forgiveness must first exclude before it can embrace. It must name and shame the evil and find an appropriate way of dealing with it before reconciliation can happen. That makes complete sense to me. That's logical. But We have another problem here because by the old system of sacrifice, almost as soon as you've made peace with God, the wonky-wheeled heart gets up to its old tricks again and separation sets in again. That's why in the Old Testament, the people of God were sacrificing stuff pretty much on a conveyor belt because nothing would be enough to cover over and make amends for all sin for all time. Once a day in the Old Testament, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would take two goats. He'd place his hands on the head of one, he'd confess the previous year, the sins of all the people of the previous year, and he'd send one of those goats off into the distance to symbolically demonstrate that our sins had been removed from us, and the other one would get sacrificed. And that would kind of form the basis of people's rightness before God. You go to the priest, goats get sacrificed, people are made clean, people sin, go to the priest, Goat gets sacrificed, and over and over, this whole cycle continues. And similar sacrifices were being made for individuals and families every single day of one sort or another. Ancient Jerusalem was awash in animal blood because, amongst other things, it was a world center for animal sacrifice in order to help people to make amends for their wrongdoing, to make a course correction of the heart, to make peace with God, and then start the whole sorry cycle over again. But this was only ever temporary. That's why one of the central arguments in the book of Hebrews is that the sacrificial system and the law were just, they were a mirage. They were a shadow of the good things that were to come in Christ. Here it is, Hebrews 10 verse 1. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. And then in verse 4. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The old sacrificial system, whilst effective at that point in history, was just a shadow of the future reality in which one sacrifice would need to be made, and not by a bull or a goat, since that would always be incomplete, but by a man. One of the underlying sentiments of so much of the writings of the Old Testament goes something like this. Man says, 
Who may dwell in your sanctuary, O God? Who can live in your presence? And the crushing response would be something like this. He whose walk is blameless. That rules me right out. It rules all of you right out. How, therefore, do you atone? How do you make us at one with God? Which of us could do that? If you lined up the whole human race and tried to find a blameless one who could enter into the presence of God and plead our case, the response would be what Paul tells us of humanity in Romans 3 verse 10. He says there's no one righteous, not even one. Of our own strength, we can offer God nothing but rebellion and apostasy, both of which are misdemeanors which prevent us from being able to even approach him, let alone make an atoning sacrifice and satisfy his justice. So, how does a perfectly loving father uphold the death penalty against humanity whilst also demonstrating his unfailing, extreme, and extraordinary love for us too? Enter Jesus and the cross. Because what happens next is not what you might expect from a a God of any sort. At that point in history, the way people saw themselves in light of the gods was that we were there for their service and their amusement. The playthings of the vindictive and erratic gods until they tired of us. And then they could just step on us and crush us and move on. But that's not how it works with our God. Perfect love just doesn't work like that. We know this from our own opaque experience of love. Love causes you to fight for the other, to leave your place of comfort, to take up arms if necessary, and if it comes to it, to lay down your life in the interest of protecting and keeping the one you love. If you grasp that concept even a little bit, then you start to grasp what God has done for us as the object of his highest love and commitment to save and protect and redeem. And so, we stand guilty of rebellion as charged, totally worthy of death for treason against the highest throne. And he says, don't worry, I have made a way to achieve perfect justice and to demonstrate perfect love. I will go to my death on your behalf. I will be your substitute. I will die the death that should have been yours. I will bear the sin and curse of all humanity and I will have Roman nails hammered through my hands and feet and I will be mocked and abused and spat on and beaten and I will ask the Father to forgive you and those who put me there and I will look upon you with great love even as I die slowly and in agony on this rugged wooden cross. Should have been us. We should have died that death. He did it for us. He said, no, I've got this. I'll go. I'll do it. You go free. I will, in my own broken body, be the atoning and friendship sacrifice that will fix the whole thing. Without the self-sacrifice of God on our behalf on the cross, we have nothing And there's nothing that we've preached so far in this series that is possible without that. There is no freedom from slavery, no cleansing of our guilt, there's no escape from hell, there's no victory over death. The most very boiled down essence of all that we have in this life and the next is that he himself bore our sin in his body on the cross. And why? What does the cross then allow us to do? Whatever we like, live in safety, send our kids to nice universities and retire quietly. No, 
He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. So that we might die. What does Jesus' self-sacrifice on the cross allow us to do? It allows us to die. He bears our sin in his body in, on the cross. He dies for us so that we might die to the old life of sin that holds us in its grasp and pronounces us guilty before God. We can now die to that because Jesus tore it off us and nailed it to the cross where he himself was nailed. That's how he bears our sins in his body. The old has gone, the new has come, and now we can live, truly live for righteousness. That means that because he has once and for all paid the price through his sacrifice, we are never again seen as criminals, as lawbreakers, as sinful. We are covered over and shielded forever by the rightness of Christ, who has gone before us. That's what it means when we say that he's taken our sin and that we've been given his righteousness. John Stott puts it like this. He says, The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, but the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Divine love has triumphed over divine wrath by divine self-sacrifice. How beautiful a phrase is that? Let me tell you what this all means for you. It means that everything that could be accused of you in your whole life, from disobeying your parents that first time to the darkest secrets that you carry in your heart, every single thing that you deserve wrath and punishment for, Jesus has paid for that. You walk free. It means that where once you carried the dirt and stain of sin, the blood of warfare against God and his purposes, Jesus says no more. You are clean, pure, righteous, and accepted. It means that where once you carried the heavy burden of making life work by yourself, where you traveled with misalignment in your wheels, always having to course correct, always struggling to get by and do things right, and never managing to stay on track, Jesus says, that battle is over. That battle is won. You need to carry that weight no more. Lay it down. Lay down that heavy burden. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me. It means that once where you were separated from God, living apart from the only pure and true and perfect source of love and acceptance that this world can offer you, an enemy of the one true God, Jesus says, I've dealt with that. I've bought your reconciliation with the Father. All that you have done that may have caused that separation, that was poured out on me. I have absorbed the punishment. You are no longer an enemy of God. You are mine. You are accepted and most welcome in my family. Son, daughter, I have turned away the wrath that was hanging over you and shown you mercy. You are home. That life of struggle and pain and exhaustion and fear and loneliness and guilt, those past hurts, the abuse, the anger, the shame, you can lay that down now. You can die to that. I have borne your sin in my body and taken it to the cross. Perfect sacrifice has been made once and for all, for all time, for you, my beloved. The Bible tells us that God made him who had no sin, 
to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. People of God, gateway, live free. It was for freedom that he set you free. There is no charge that can be levied against you anymore as you cling to Jesus and put your trust and faith in him. Let faith and confidence rise up in you. Faith to take the next mountain, confidence to stand, rest, and surrender to the purposes of God in your life. Because our great substitute, King Jesus, has gone to the cross on your behalf and made all of this possible. Isn't that good news? Let's pray. King Jesus, thank you so much for your sacrifice on the cross without which we have nothing, nothing at all. We stand here and can boast about nothing except you and what you've done in taking away our sins, allowing us to die to that old life, allowing us to be wrestled free of the chains of guilt and shame and past hurts and abuse and anger and all that sort of stuff. You've allowed us to wrestle free of that because you went to the cross and you bore our sins in your body. Thank you so much now that we are dead to that sin and we can live for righteousness. And I pray for everyone in this room that we would walk in faith and confidence and freedom. The freedom that you went to the cross for, bought for us. Lord, help us this week to walk in that freedom. King Jesus, you are so worthy of all the praise, all the songs we're about to sing now. You're so worthy of it all. And we just say thank you to you. We glorify you. Amen.